everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Hey, buddy. How's it going? It's going good, man. What are you up to, bro? Yeah, it's been a while since we recorded. It's uh, good to be talking to you again. Um, How are things? How are things? Things are good. Things are good. It's been a very, I would say, unique January to say the least. I uh, I have just like survived. I think it was nine atmospheric rivers. Oh they- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I, I did. I hate to laugh because I mean, like California had some serious natural disaster type stuff going on. I forgot all about that. Yeah, but you know what the 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 good thing is is that you know meteorologists have not been able to f- able to figure out why it happened, but I know why it happened, and that is because when I was in Europe a few months ago, I was like, well, you know what, I'm not going to deal with a wet, cold winter in Europe. I'm going to go buy a new motorcycle in California mm. because <laughs> it, it never rains there and I can ride around. <laughs> oh, oh my God. So, <laughs> what they really need to do is say, you know, what? we've got a major drought here in this country. Uh, let's get tooth to come here and buy a motorcycle. Yeah. So anybody, we anybody, we'll, just, we'll, do, we'll just send you to whatever part of the world is drought ridden with your motorcycle. <laughs> What are the mathematical odds? It literally never rains there, and it definitely never oh, like flash floods there. It's the simulation fucking with you. It has totally, to be. Totally. It has to be. If you if anyone needs proof that we're in a simulation, that's it right there. <laughs> I'm glad you got through it. I'm glad it's over with now. I know it's not the kind of rain California needs, but at least California did get some rain. I know drought situations there have been terrible, so at least there's that. Try to look at the bright side. Absolutely. How's the weather there now? It's sunny and beautiful and kind of on the cold side. It's uh, like 59 degrees. Oh, that's, um, that's the cold Fahrenheit. side. <laughs> <laughs> so there's California people. It's 60 degrees. It's in January. It's a little cold. It's 25 degrees here today. Oh, my gosh. Which is actually pretty warm for January in Denver. There's about five inches of snow on the ground outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like minus one or two Celsius. That is insane. But you know what, though? Like, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. Uh, it's been a pretty mild winter here so far in Denver, and I like the cold. And I stay inside all the time, so I'm definitely not trying to complain. It's beautiful here. No, you're lucky. You're lucky. Otherwise, uh, what's been going on with you? Oh, wait. Actually, I know something that's been going on with you. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce you guys to the two-time jiu-jitsu black belt world champion nick the tooth two times thank you thank you thank you it was uh it was awesome i it's really one of the reasons and the main reason that i came back from europe i wanted to uh i wanted to try and reclaim some of my former life <laughs> from before the pandemic you know it's uh it's crazy how it's you know, the reality is i was talking to someone about this the other day that people are still only now starting to like put everything back in place. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so yeah, no, it was good. And not only that, I had an incredible Cronenberg moment after the Uh, uh, winning. Oh yeah. So yeah. So very David Cronenberg on the body. Um, I want, I competed on Saturday and I woke up on Sunday and I noticed that my hip, like right on the right side of my freaking butt, kind of hurt. And by Monday, I was like limping and it really started to hurt. And so I was like, oh, shit, man, please tell me. Please tell me I don't have a staph infection. Oh, no. Because, yeah, because last year oh my God. when I was in the deep south, I got a staph infection on my ankle. Oh, because I was so I was so angry about being in the deep south because I don't like the south, and so I was I was eaten alive by mosquitoes and I was scratching. I was like, I'm going to get this venom out of here. And then I rolled in a garage because there's no proper gyms there, and uh, I got staff there. And it, let me tell you something about staff, Winston. Okay, staff infection is like when you get it. It's like you are aware that there is something foreign in your body that could very well take over and colonize 
your entire oh, freaking sh- system. Yeah. And so you, <laughs> oh. you go to you're, you're forced. They give you antibiotics at first, which is what happened. And then you wait and you're waiting a few days and you're like, okay, now four, four days have gone by since I've been on antibiotics since Sunday or Monday and it hasn't helped. And whether it was my ankle or my butt, <laughs> then it, then it's like, oh shit, oh shit. And now I'm in the ER. Oh I'm rushing God. to the Again? ER. Yeah. Oh my again. God. And it hurts so bad. And they're like, and they tell you, dude, this is going to hurt. So, and I'm, I'm an expert at it now. So I roll up a towel, I put it between my teeth, I'm gripping the bed and they're just freaking, they stick the needles into that staph infection, which is so tender. Oh my God. It hurts so much. And David, and then they're like, David Cronenberg's like in the observation area, just like taking notes and smiling. Oh, <laughs> dude. And so, and so, yeah. So, and then they're like, the doctor's like, guess what, man? The surgeon's like, the the anesthetic can only go in so deep. It can't pass through the abscess. So when I get on the other side and I'm starting to dig all this infection out, there'll be no anesthetic. And so, oh, dude, it is, I can't even describe the pain. And then it gets even better because then afterwards, you're thinking, you know, after you get out and they've like drained it and they've cut it all out and you're bandaged up. And, oh, let me tell you what happened in both of these is then they take this like a string of gauze and they stuff it inside the wound, Ugh. right? So the wound doesn't collapse. And so it can heal from the inside out. Um, and so you've got this gauze stuffed in there and you're waiting every day with bated breath and I cannot, I'm not joking. It, it, when I had my ankle done, I was like, I hope I don't, if this infection comes back, then it's MRSA. And if it's MRSA, then there's a good chance I spend a month in the hospital and I lose my leg or my foot. Right. Uh. And so, oh, uh, it was, it's such a brutal thing. And what was even better this time, because it was really deep, is that my buddy, uh, Alessandro, I was able to say to him like every day, I'm like, dude, now you get to do me a really big favor, right? You get to come. And when I, every day you've got to drain the wound and pull the gauze out and all this blood and pus is coming out and then you clean it out. And then he had to stuff the gauze back in my butt. Jesus Christ. I know, dude. It's like a. So, anyways, Cronenberg would have been in heaven. He would have been giddy with laughter. Yeah, it's it's crimes of the present going on over here. Okay. So, so anyways, let's move on past that. So, yes, I won and it was great, but yeah. You paid the price. Okay. So, actually, uh, as horrifying as that story is, that actually makes a really good segue into the topic of our episode today because the topic of our episode is top 10 science fiction antagonists and now we know your number one science fact antagonist hey you're two and oh now <laughs> you're like oh <laughs> so let's just hope there's not a trilogy bout in this case yeah because i i don't think i, I think if there's a third one i'm going down no, no. i can predict no, that I, right I, now. I'm, I'm over here knocking <laughs> knocking wood because I, I, I we obviously don't want that to happen but jesus what a nightmare oh, okay but that does gosh. that is a good segue because guys we are doing our official unofficial top 10 science fiction antagonists sci-fi baddies and both tooth and i made our top 10 lists independently of one another so we actually don't know what's on the other's list starting right now so there could be a little overlap we don't know there could be some surprises we don't know but we do we did kind of go into it with the same philosophy i think trying to avoid picking the obvious choices i guess i would say the characters that are on top 10 lists mostly because of popularity and of course there are plenty of obvious choices that belong on top 10 lists right yeah i mean a top 10 list for sci-fi villains are easy Right. You've got, you know, for me, it would be Darth Vader, Predator, Terminator. Right. I'm sure you have yours. Too, yeah, right? I, made a, I actually made a list of honorable mentions that make complete sense to be on anybody's top 
10 list that didn't make mine. Actually, a lot of these were on my top 10 list, but the longer I thought about it, they ended, ended up getting bumped out. And not because uh, they don't deserve it, just because, you know, I had to make my personal list, the ones that are like personally to me, the most chilling and scary villains. Here are some of my honorable mentions. Skynet from the Terminator series, Agent Smith from the Matrix series, Jean-Baptiste Zorg from The Fifth Element, Roy Batty from Blade Runner. We already mentioned Darth Vader. Cthulhu, of course. The Blob. A bunch of Marvel characters like Galactus and Venom and Carnage made my honorable mentions list, but didn't make my top 10 list. So it goes to show you, I think, how hard it is to put together one of these lists because there are so many great characters that deserve to be on these lists that you know just can't fit on everybody's personal top 10. So, And this is a, one, of the, one of the reasons why we both made independent top 10s too, so you can kind of get an idea of how they're personal to us and that kind of thing. Well, you know, I, th- th- I just hit me, Winston, yeah. and I'm really – I think – I want us to think about this as we go through our list. Okay. Can you imagine – I mean, think about how important – and we've talked about this before – how important a villain is, right? Oh, yeah. Really a story. It's really about the villain. Absolutely. The villain is what creates and and many of drives these, the action of the story. Yeah. And and many of these real franchises, billion dollar franchises, are centered on the villain. Even Star Wars, especially Star Wars, mm-hmm. but you know, Predator, oh, Terminator, Alien. Sure. Yeah. It's called, it's called Predator, not yeah, the alien, people fighting Predator, you know? You know? <laughs> and w- what's crazy is, can you imagine what it was like as the writer, the creator of the villain? Did they know at the time, like, oh my God, this villain is going to be so fucking amazing? Did they know that? Um, and I- I'll give you a little bit of trivia on this. Okay. George Lucas did not think that Darth Vader was really going to be the villain, that in his mind, Admiral Tarkin from Star Wars was the oh, real wow. villain. And it was only when the the fan reaction to Darth Vader that it was like, no, we need to center the whole series around Darth Vader. Isn't that crazy? Oh, yeah goes to show you that things kind of fall into place a lot of these times for these villains. Like you said, he didn't envision Vader as the number one villain in the story. And you can kind of tell when you start watching A New Hope, you can kind of see how the leaders of the Empire are chasing leadership with Vader. You know what I mean? Vader is the obvious front runner for like the most badass character. It's over the course of the original trilogy that he really shows you that he's the number one baddie. And also, I mean, think about, you know, if you really think about A New Hope, it was all about Nazism, right? And so of course. I mean, George Lucas, Nazism is everything to him just because of his heritage. You know, you look at Indiana Jones, you look at, dude, Star Wars. So if for him, the Admiral was like a chief fucking Nazi, you know, putting people in, you know, concentration camps. Darth Vader was not. He was just, you know, so you kind of can see that. But then you're right. By. By, by Empire Strikes Back, it's like, no, 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 no. It's all about Darth Vader. So The rest of the Empire is barely even in. I mean, they're in it, obviously. It's called the Empire Strikes Back, but it's really Vader Strikes Back. Yes, exactly. Okay, anyway, we're going off a little tangent there. Let's, uh, before we <laughs> get, get, get too far, of course, let's go ahead and jump into our lists here. As we go through these, we're going to try to justify why we included each of these characters on the list to you guys and to ourselves and to each other. Hopefully, you'll get an idea of why they're included in there. Why don't you start, Tooth? Why don't you start with your number 10? Okay. So, again, with that theme of, uh, you know, these are definitely uh, not – I tried not to be too obvious. Also, it was very difficult for me, and I really kind of threw it out the window, the idea of ranking them from, you know – worst to best or whatever it was. So I kind of just threw them all in a hat and pulled them out. <clears throat> cool. At number 10, I have from one of my favorite films of all time, and we've talked about it extensively. Uh, it's from Mad Max Fury Road. Um, just, uh, I, I love this movie so much. And I, again, I think it was really made by the villain, and that was Immortan Joe. So I'm going to go with oh, Immortan man. Joe for number 10. What um, an awesome choice. What an right, awesome choice. Right? I mean, I was so into freaking Mad Max Fury Road that it's one of the few um, movies that I bought like a making of a beautiful coffee table book. 
And uh, I loved one of the little, another bit of trivia is that for this film, they didn't even have a screenplay. It was all Hmm. done through storyboards. So the book, the coffee table book is amazing because it's all the original art. And you get to see how like Immortan Joe was originally freaking visualized and then brought to life. And, um, but not only brought to life by freaking, you know, uh, by the costume designers and all that, but by Hugh Keys Burn, right? Am I saying his name correctly? I think, yeah, I think it is Hugh Keys Burn. I think that's how you say it. First of all, I'm kind of kicking myself for not having considered this character in my list. So I'm a little jealous of you for having included him. (laughs) But I think it's really good that you picked this character because it's cool that you picked a character who we've done an episode about. We've done a Mad Max episode. And not all of the characters on my list we've done episodes about, but some of them we have. And it's really cool to do callbacks. So guys, as we go through this list... Uh, especially you know ones like this. If you want to know more about the villain, know more about the development and all that stuff, you can go back and listen to the, a previous episode. Our Mad Max episode was one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. So the fact that I didn't even consider this, it makes me feel kind of dumb, but great choice on this one. Yeah, and I thought, yeah, I thought of all the Mad Max movies in the Mad Max universe, I thought this character, which is so shocking, was the best villain because it was the latest. You know, it's kind of hard to keep making Star Wars a struggle with that, right? It's very difficult to continue coming up with just better and better villains. And I thought this one by far, Immortan Joe to me was just incredible. Uh, I, I just, there's not enough good I can say about it. And in fact, the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, man, I want to watch that again, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is a movie, This uh, I'm not trying to interrupt you here, but this is a movie that I'm also a huge, huge fan of. So I'm really glad that this character made our, our like episode because I love talking about the Mad Max movies. I know we did an episode about Mad Max. And so this is a great one to pick. So just, I'm real glad that you decided on this one. What, what's really funny about Emerton Joe is that the actor Hugh Keys Byrne played a villain in two different Mad Max movies. You know, he he played a villain in the first and the latest Mad Max movies. Uh, you know, R.I.P. Hugh Keysburn. He died like maybe a year or two two ago. But uh, yeah, that it's so funny that he could he, like you had trouble deciding which villain that he played. Half and, of and, and that's that's wild because when in what franchise has that ever happened? Where they're like, where you're like, you're gonna play two different villains, right? You're gonna bookend this, so to speak, at least for now until we get another one. But uh, yeah, he did an amazing job and sad to see, sad to learn that he died just a few years ago. So He had some really great quotes in the movie, like just the way he thought. He was so callous. He's talking about his breeders being stolen. He's like, that's my property. He treats women like objects, man. He just thinks of them that way. Uh, and, he, you know, he's a sex slaver and just a general slaver. He's a really evil character. So it's a really good choice for a villain. Yeah, I. you know, it's one, I think one other. Uh, part, villain like in that movie that really struck me and I think one of the reasons I liked the movie so much is the actual culture mm. right mm. so they have this culture this water starved culture totally. you know where breeding is the most important thing and you know uh, to, as a continuation of the race there are ra- human races dying absolutely out, right and so even though you're like this is so vile this is so reprehensible but at the same time, you're like, I understand why society evolved into this. Right. Because sometimes, like when you have a, like the movie Waterworld, right? This that dystopian future. I never really bought it. I never was like, I don't get it. It doesn't. I don't see humanity going this way. Whatever you know. But this movie, you're like, holy shit, man. If I could see if society goes down this dystopian path based on climate change, that we end up in a place like this. So I thought that was really cool, man. The main villain, the overarching villain in the Mad Max franchise is the climate apocalypse. Yes. yes. Yeah, you're, it's a really interesting thought. That's very cool. You're up. All right. My number 10 is also kind of popular. I think I've got some somewhat popular ones on mine, but my number 10 is they from they live 
Okay, and I, I throw a little history together. Okay, so you know they live is based kind of very loosely on a short story called Eight O'clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson, which was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in the November nineteen sixty three issue, and then was later remade into a comic for the Alien Encounters anthology in the eighties. There was a comic book called Alien Worlds that ran for a few years, and then after it ran its course, there was another one right after by the same publisher called Alien Encounters, and they were comic adaptations of short stories. They're really awesome. If you get a hold of any of those comics, they're fucking awesome. But uh, what happened is John Carpenter got a hold of this story. It was called Nada when it was remade in the anthology in Alien Encounters. And he saw it and it just blew his mind. And then he kind of just went with it. He ended up making up a uh, writer's name for the script because he felt like it, even though he actually wrote the screenplay himself, he felt like there were so many pieces of source material that he felt like no one person should really get the credit for the script, including himself. If you guys don't know, they, if you haven't seen They Live, which you should immediately go do that, they are a race of alien beings that control the Earth by hiding in plain sight. They hypnotize everyone through uh, signals broadcast over the airwaves or through radio waves that makes everybody basically unconscious to all these subliminal messages they're seeing all around them. Like the money says, this is your God, and all the street signs that have advertisements on them actually say things like, stay asleep, you know, have children, spend money, that kind of thing. And it's a really cool movie because it's a scathing indictment of capitalist culture uh, and you know, modern American life in the 80s. And the creatures, the They Live creatures, are also super scary looking. They're, I mean, it's a simple effect, I guess, but they're, they're really crazy looking aliens. One of the reasons I think that they're such a good villain is because they're so much like the actual villains of our life here on Earth that would much prefer everybody just, you know, go to work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, have your children, don't cause any problems, Shut the fuck up and die, and just start over with a new generation. It's crazy. This is this right here. You know, when I was making my list, I was like, we have to do like each of us a top five of super cult movies, sci-fi cult movies. You know, and this is one of the best cult sci-fi movies, and very, very mm. influential. You know, oh, Shepard yeah. Fairey, who started Obey, the clothing brand. One of the great living artists did the Obama uh, Hope uh, sticker and uh, Obey is from it's like one of those. He basically came up with a, an advertisement from They Live. He was very Obey was completely. Uh, yeah, and it's definitely that, like this movie. what I was going to say before is that it came out in 1988, but I feel like it gets more applicable, more prescient Every year, as time goes by, it's more and more like applicable to like modern life as we kind of sink further and further into the quagmire of materialistic consumerist society. It's gotten worse and worse and worse since the 80s. I mean, it was bad in the 50s. There was some rebelling against it in the 60s, but it just came right back around again in the 70s and then really like went into overdrive in the 80s with Reaganism and like trickle down economics is literally them just saying obey. Obey, you know, yeah. it, go to work. It, it really, it, <laughs> I know it really is that, you know, and bring it up. I just want to say that when I was doing my list, I was like looking at my bookshelf and looking at my movie collection and just looking on the internet, just being like, what, what's going to be on my list. And the whole time I have like a, a, they mask that I keep on a, a little dummy head in my office area. And it looked at me the whole time. And then like, this is one of the last things to make my list. And finally I looked over at it and I was like, Oh yeah, no shit. <laughs> and it's like sitting there looking at me the whole, it's like five feet from me. Oh, so it good. stares at me so all day. Good. But before oh we get gosh. off of this one and get on to the number nines, I just thought I'd like to mention a short story. I always bring Philip K. Dick into every discussion we do, but there's also, <laughs> there's a short story by Philip K. Dick called the hanging stranger, which I think at least had to be something of an inspiration for this as well, which has a lot of the similar themes and I won't go into the story or whatever, but if you Google the hanging stranger by Philip K. Dick, the story is available on a website just written just like as the text on a website. So you can read it without having to buy a book or find it anywhere. And I highly recommend you read it. It's a great story, has a great twist. Um, it's not hella long. So I just, okay. you know, want to recommend awesome. that. To awesome. So. Love it. Love it. Love it. My number nine is number six from Battlestar Galactica, the, the remake of the 2004 TV series. Oh, man. And, right, she yeah, is, so at first I was like, because to, to me, Battlestar Galactica, this remake, uh, 
is one of the greatest sci-fi series ever. I loved it. I was so enthralled by it. I haven't watched it again. It's been a while, but I really was so like I watched that series from start to finish every single episode. I cracked out on it. And uh, it was, when you find out that number six is a Zylon. Oh my gosh. Right. It's a it's shock. A, it's a shock. <laughs> it's a real it's, shock. Yeah. I mean, I really recommend to everybody to watch it. It's four seasons and then there's like a, a final like uh, episode, but uh, our follow-up episode, but this is to me, she was so great because she, at first I was like, okay, Gaius Butler, Gaius Butler is going to be my pick. And I was like, no, 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 no. Gaius is so expected. So uh, when I thought of her, I was like, she was the one who you think is at first you're kind of questioning issues. I don't know. She not, you know, but she is just so like loving and seductive and, fucking completely ruthless in a way that is just like staggering and the perfect type of a villain, like almost, you know, like the Terminator is so, so, so like one tracked. Well, it's like that type of a one track murderous mind, but with this seductive loving, you know what I mean? It is such a ruthless combination. And so anyways, yeah, I recommend. I, I love that series. I Before we move on, I think it's kind of a, um interesting pick because my last pick was the they and they're infiltrators and you don't know that they're villains. I hadn't seen the whole series, but I had seen parts of the 70s Battlestar Galactica series before I watched the reboot. In the 70s series, the Cylons, they don't look like humans. At all. At all. They look like fucking robot yeah. guys or like, you know, or, or at least they look like armored humanoids they don't fool anybody into thinking they're humans and that's a complete plot twist in the remake of Battlestar Galactica because you're watching the series you know that they're at war with the Cylons and everything but you don't at all expect them to be the characters that are already introduced because if you're he had already been familiar with the series or even even if you hadn't there was no hint that they were going to be already having infiltrated human society and everything. So I thought, you know, when I saw the series, I was like, man, I was like, that is a really good idea for this show. And especially since, right. the, Cylons, especially since the Cylons are like machines, you know? So uh, mm-hmm. the, the idea that they could just build new, more advanced models that look like human beings is like kind of like a, a screenwriter no-brainer. But that doesn't mean it doesn't take the audience totally by surprise. And, and what's even crazier is they play with it even more. Like in the original series, it's Gaius Baltar, who is the, the, the Judas who betrays humanity. But in this one, they play with that theme even more to where some of the Cylons don't even know that they're Cylons. Right. So they're sleeper agents inside of this like tribe that is fleeing the destruction of their planet across the universe, looking for the old Earth as a haven and they are you know there's only so many ships they're being chased by these cylons who are trying to destroy them right and destroy the last remnants of humanity and they've infiltrated them and some of them don't even know that they're sleeper right. uh, cylons yeah which is another mind fuck right? right that's a really good show it's not even a very lengthy show too what is it three seasons four seasons Four seasons. Four, yeah, four, four seasons. seasons. So yeah, yeah, that's another one. I don't know where it's uh, streaming right now, but if that's another pretty easy, pretty easy show to watch, it also is definitely like a, a binge worthy TV show too. Oh, it's one of the, I think it's one of the most binge worthy shows I've ever seen. Where I was just like, what? Exactly the same thing happened to me. It totally caught me off guard, and I was like, oh damn. And also, you know, obviously we're talking about villains in this thing, but Edward James almost deserved a lead role in a sci fi series too. You know. He killed it. He the whole cast was amazing. The, whole cast, the writing's yeah, great. The all of it is so 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 good. Yeah, okay, really dope. My man. number nine. So this is probably one of the slightly more obscure ones on my list. Although I, there are a couple of pretty obscure ones, but this is probably one of the more obscure ones. I picked the Shrike from Dan Simmons Hyperion. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and the Hyperion Cantos. And okay, so I'll 
really quickly go over what the Hyperion Cantos is for those that aren't familiar. It's a four book series, and it's basically about a distant future where the universe is run by three powers. One's called the Hegemony, which is like kind of the remnants of Earth in the distant future. One is run by artificial intelligence, which is separated from humanity and has its own thing going on. They're called the Technocore. And then there's another power called the Ousters, which are like a fringe humanoid movement that's sort of battling with the Hegemony. And these three powers are all kind of converging on this planet called Hyperion. And on Hyperion, there's this really strange phenomenon called the time tombs, where time seems to not work correctly, or there's like some sort of time anomaly happening in the time tombs on the planet of Hyperion. Okay, the stories about these pilgrims, it sort of parallels the uh, Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. A lot of people say that, and it's kind of like that. At least in the first book, it's like that. It's got the different characters all going there for different reasons, and as they tell their stories about why they're going there, the plot sort of unravels. Anyway, at the crux of all of this is this being called the Shrike. And the Shrike, I wrote it down because trying to describe the Shrike is kind of hard. It's described as a legendary and seemingly indestructible being of incredible power and strength, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but sorry. Sorry if this does spoil it. If it, Cover your ears if you want to read this. I don't want to spoil it too much, but the Shrike is created in humanity's distant future using advanced technology and then sent backwards through time. But the Shrike also is able to pass from spot to spot instantaneously, so it gives the appearance of being able to time travel. I also have a um, description of the Shrike because when you're reading the book, everybody describes the Shrike when they encounter it, and it's horrifying in every single time it's described. But So I'm just going to give one of these descriptions to you. is a roughly humanoid shaped, three meters in height, that's a little shy of 10 feet, with a carapace made entirely of metal resembling chrome steel. It has four arms, with the lower arms being slightly shorter than the upper arms, and four hands tipped with scalpel-like finger blades. Its body is covered with an array of blades and thorns, including a large curved thorn on its chest and curving blades on its forehead and then another higher up on a head, and a rosette of thorns on its limb joints. Its eyes are multifaceted and give off a vivid red glow, and its mouth contained rows of multiple sharp metal teeth. So if that description isn't scary as shit to you, I don't know what you need to be scared by a villain. But also, the thing is like designed to kill. And pretty much every scene that it's in in the book, and there are several in, well, in all the books, it is murdering the shit out of people. And not just as easily as it can, not just like in the, like cutting their heads off. It's intentionally killing everybody in the most violent, ghastly way it can. It's like designed to not just kill people, but to inflict as much pain as it can while it kills in, them. Incredible. It was incredible in the book there are all these cults that worship it and call it like the god of death and the god of pain okay so hold on hold on i'm gonna interrupt you right now and we're gonna merge okay because you're not gonna believe my number eight pick yeah and so i want to continue talking about with this i love it my number eight eight pick is hyperion the Bakura. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and so everyone, just so you know, what he's talking about, what Winston's talking about is one of the cults. So I picked one of the cults of the Shrike. This book is so freaking good. It's regarded as one it is, of the greatest. It's a real page book. turner too. All yeah. the different sections are written with like a slightly different style, like a different style of science fiction. There's like a detective story and like a military sci-fi story yeah. and like a religious sci-fi story. It's really, it's really a f- awesome and fascinating. They're all good. The, all the books are good, but the, the first one obviously is like the real, like, and and for and for me, yeah, well, for me, my favorite section is the one about the Bakura, which is one of the cults. And um, so we we have someone who goes to investigate one of the cults, and because it's really freaky, man, <laughs> oh, dude, it freaked me the fuck out because you know, just like uh, it, it was one of those situations where I was like, I am more freaked out by the idea that this guy, so the, the the name of this cult, they call themselves three score and 10, which means there are 70 of them. You learn that. There are only 70 in this population. And um, they are part of what they call the cruciform. It's like a crucifix type thing. And they basically worship the Shrike, right? Right. And so, but the thing is, this, this uh, is he a priest? I think maybe. 
who's going to... I just jumped to the Bakura page. I already had the Shrike page open, so I just jumped to the Bakura page because it was just like, there was already a hyperlink on the page that I was looking at. Okay, so the Bakura... They exist out in like an extremely, extremely remote part in this jungle that's surrounded by, I can't remember what they're called, but they're like electrical trees. Yeah. If you pass through it at the wrong time of the year, the trees become electrified and literally electrocute you to death while you're passing through these trees. That part was freaky enough all by itself. Yeah. But yeah, the story is about one priest who goes and finds them and lives with them. And then it's being told by a different priest who finds his records. And he goes and lives with these this this like kind of mythical tribe, and he finds these people, and th- it turns out they like have they're like these sh- midget type. This is the way I envision right. them: midget type people with Down Down right. syndrome, because they're so like inbred, <laughs> and they're like the they're the way they think is like just almost murderous, right? If you're not part of the cruciform, they will murder you. If they see you and, but they think that he's part of the cruciform, I don't even want to give too much away because I've hope, I hope that we have excited people to listeners to go ahead and read this. Cause if you haven't read it, read it, especially this. Section. This is, I think the first of the story, like of the tales, like there's a really long, there's a really long intro yeah. to the book. That's as long as any of the individual tales where they're all on the seed ship on their way to Hyperion. And they're like introducing each other to one another. But then it starts with a story. And I think Paul DeRay's story is the first story. I think it is. It's been a while. Honestly, no introductory story could draw you into a tale faster than that one. The cult is incredibly scary and murderous and like like you said, they have Down syndrome. They can barely think. They can't really answer questions. They can't understand complex thought at all. But the question that I won't I won't spoil it for you guys. But this question is: They're the cult of seventy, as he said. But how they maintain a population of exactly seventy is like a mystery until the very end of that section. Yeah. And then when you find out what's going on, it will blow your wig off for sure. I thought anyway. I did too. I was like, I, dude, I'm telling you, man, this one, especially what I thought was so cool about that the Bakura as characters is they're childlike, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're childlike, they're child thinking, they're very innocent in many ways, but yet they're so f- creepy. Yeah. That it's just I, I to this day I'm just like oh my gosh what what a genius what genius writing that was so yeah that's why they make my number nine <laughs> it's a really genius novel and came out in 1989 and it won I think it won all the awards that year but definitely put it on your list it's kind of a long book but it's absolutely worth it very interesting. The cool thing is it it's kind of a book of short stories, though, you know, or little novelettes. Yes, but they're all wound together. It's a really cool story. How coincidental. I know. You know guys, I, I, we, <laughs> we swear, we swear we did not share these lists with each other. Okay. No. Okay. So that'll take me to my number eight. We're going to change a little direction a little bit here. Now we're going to start going into ones that are like way more obvious, that are like obvious choices. Okay. So, but, but I just didn't feel like I could leave them off. This is one that makes going to make sense. I know at least to you. My number eight is Baron Vladimir Harkonnen Mm. from Dune. I get the feeling he might have made a list later on, but we'll see. We'll see. Okay, so we talked about Dune in our very first episode of this show three and a half years ago, or however the hell long it's been now. And, you know, we talked about Dune again when the uh, first installment of the new film came out. Everybody knows that we're big Dune fans, so it would have felt a little bit fake to leave the Baron off of this list. The Baron doesn't actually have to be the only choice for a antagonist from Dune. There are several other extremely scary characters in Dune. So even when I wrote this down, I was like, is the bear the one I want to put? There's also Fade, who's an extremely scary character. There's the Shai Halud, which is extremely scary. There's the Emperor, which is extremely scary. There's, I mean, like the book is filled with antagonists. Like everybody in Dune is basically an antagonist, including Paul, who, until you've read a couple of the books, you don't realize is actually the antagonist of the whole damn story. Right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and we've, we've talked about that the whole time. But the reason I picked the Baron is because the Baron just drips evil. For the one person listening to this who hasn't seen or read Dune and is listening to this this far into our podcast, first of all, that's not meant as a slight at all. We all start somewhere. So please don't think I'm trying to like gatekeep you in any way if you haven't read dune i envy you because Ugh. you still have that in front of you and that is just like 
the best place to be. But for those of us who have read it, you already know, the Emperor is the leader of the House of Harkonnen, and they're like the evil house in the Dune universe. And Vlad is super conniving, super evil, super vindictive. That's the thing that really struck me about him is how like petty and vindictive he is. In fact, he uh, is almost undone by this because when Duke Leto is captured, the doctor knows that the Baron is so vindictive that he'll definitely gloat over his victim. And so he puts a poison gas tooth in Leto's mouth for him to uh, try to assassinate the Baron. And the Baron only barely escapes because he does actually do exactly what the doctor thinks he's going to do. But Besides all the things he does to accelerate the plot of the story, you know, betraying the house of Atreides and betraying the doctor who he makes a deal with to betray the house of Atreides, he's also very on the periphery, a sexual predator too, you know, and that has nothing to do with the plot of the story really at all. They just are like, oh, by the way, he rapes little boys. And you're just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, And uh, they also describe him as being grossly and immensely fat. And, you know, he has to use these like anti-gravity boosters to get around so that he can move around because he's so hedonistic that he's constantly eating and like eating disgusting food and all that stuff. And like he's eating in a lot of scenes and everything. But I don't want to like continue the fat phobia and the body shaming that I think kind of is implied there. Okay, but one thing to keep in mind about Baron Harkonnen, I went back and I uh, read the prequels that were written by his son based on Herbert left extensive notes in his right, estate. Right. This is another example of how you guys should revisit some of our previous episodes when we're talking about these. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No. So the the prequels were amazing. And you get the gist of why Harkonnen was not, the Baron was not always fat. He actually, and he was not always a villain. So he had this crazy arc where at one point he was like heroic and a good guy. And so it's really cool to uh, to go back and, and, and see how he went through that transformation. It's sort of like Darth Vader in a way. Yeah. You know, uh, going from being uh, Anakin Skywalker and being heroic and everything and then being completely corrupted and turning absolutely evil. But, you know, also Harkonnen precedes Darth Vader by more than a decade. Yes. And, and you know, and we talked about in depth – the parallels between, you know, Dune and Star Wars also. Star Wars owes a lot to freaking Dune. Absolutely. You guys definitely go back and listen to those those episodes for sure. Okay, we covered Baron. Uh, so why don't we go on? Why don't we move on to your number seven? I know not in a million years would you guess that that I would pick put this one on the list. Oh, I love this that. Is a, yeah, this is a what I would call a dark horse. And apropos, it is from one of my favorite sci-fi movies, Donnie Darko. Oh, what an interesting choice. Right? And the villain in Donnie Darko is Frank the Rabbit. Right. Right? What what an interesting, like, I like that sort of like a weird meta choice almost. Yes. Yes. Donnie Darko is a 2001 cult film. (laughs) And I I remember when I first saw it, a friend of mine was like, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. I didn't like it. And I was like, it's just too weird. It's too dark. It's a pretty divisive movie. Even still, I think like a lot of people are like, oh, it's so overrated. Of course, I know how much you love it. And I'm a big fan too. I think it's a great atmospheric movie. But beyond anything else, it's just got a great feel to it. Yeah, it's got this feeling of weirdness and it's it's I love how it's it deals with like these, you know, physics elements of time travel and you know, time loops and Frank is a villain. I don't even want to spoil it too much, but Frank is a villain who is not a villain. Right. And it's one of these things that you're thinking that uh, it's just one of the creepiest, coolest things. I don't usually. I'm like, I don't. I, 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 I forget spoilers. This thing's twenty something years old, right? But for this one, you, you gotta watch it because you think that Frank is one thing, and at the very end, it's got this kind of a twist 
where you're like, oh my God, who's the real villain here? What is going on? But Frank is definitely driving Jake Gyllenhaal's character's actions through the movie. Throughout the entire movie, yeah. And is definitely super sinister and like twisted every time the character appears on screen. And like you said, it's got like a wild twist. You know what it kind of reminds me of, without trying to give too much away, is it kind of reminds me of Tony from The Shining. Yeah. It's kind of got a little bit of an element to that, like the little boy that lives in Danny's mouth, especially in the novel version of that character, not so much Stanley Kubrick's movie adaptation version of the character. But I mean, even still a little bit, but it kind of has a little bit of that element going on to it as well. So this was like one of those, and 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 it made me as I went through my list, I was like, man, we it would be so cool if we did kind of a top five like sci-fi cult movies. I think we should definitely do more of these top tens because this is a fun format for me, guys. For this one, please hit us up and tell us what you think of this format because this is obviously the first one we're doing like this, and we want to make the fans happy. We want to make the listeners happy, obviously. So if you guys are enjoying this format, you know. If we do these once like every third or fourth episode or whatever, let us know. Please do. The more feedback we get, the happier we are. Yeah. And and I think for sci-fi, there's something about sci-fi as a genre that cult movies are so rad. And to me, Absolutely. a cult movie is something that bombs you know, at the box office. And then all of a sudden kind of picks up like everyone's like, or within the genre of people like us are just like, and our fans and our listeners are like, hell yeah, that is one of the best. I completely agree with you. One of the things about cult movies is that most people, like because it's a cult movie, like the majority of people are going to be mostly unfamiliar or have dismissed it as not being great because of reviews they heard and everything else. But, you know, it's like one of those, like, if you know, you know type situations. Yes, yes. And Johnny Darko is absolutely one of those things. And Frank, as a villain, is absolutely one of those things for sure. So good choice. Thank you. Okay, so my number seven, I think, is the most obvious choice I made for my whole list. Okay. Uh, unlike your, like you went from cult, and I'm going the opposite direction and picking one of the most iconic villains in all of science fiction, and that is the xenomorph from Alien. Mm. For a ton of reasons. And okay, so let's, let me just say that when I was picking the xenomorph, I waffled back and forth between putting the xenomorph as my villain and putting the Wayland yutani Corporation as my villain. Uh, ah. Because, because I, to me, they're both equally important villains in, in the series. But I'll catch you up with reasons later why I didn't end up putting the, the corporation and instead chose the xenomorph. But one of the main reasons is because the xenomorph is so goddamn scary looking. It is... Obviously, based on H.R. Giger's, his appearance was based on his art in the first place and then was designed by Giger himself. I think we probably talked about this in the Alien episode, again, calling back to a previous episode. I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but when Ridley Scott took over as the director of Alien, he insisted that H.R. Giger be brought on to design. Giger had already been thrown around as the designer for the movie, and the studio came in and were like, no, that's too twisted. That's too fucked up. I, we think that'll turn audiences off. That's incredible. And when Ridley Scott came on, he was like, if you want me to direct this movie, he's doing the design work, period, in the discussion. And besides being horrifying in appearance, the xenomorph is scary for so many other reasons. You know, he's described as the perfect organism, but not because he lives in harmony with the world around him or whatever, but because he's a killer. It's a killer. All it does is kill to kill and to reproduce are its only two functions. It's got acid for blood so that if you try to kill it, it kills you back. It reproduces by laying its eggs in your body cavity and then busting out of your chest and killing you in the process or else cocooning you to save you for later to do that to you. This one, I feel like of all of my choices requires the least justification. I think pretty much anybody who knows anything about science fiction sees the xenomorph and thinks, Okay, that's a scary. No, I, I think it's. I think it's incredible. Wasn't the xenomorph at the end finally of Prometheus? Oh yeah, yeah. The prequels, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, they do add to the argument that Wayland Utani is the real villain in the series because it's because of Wayland's actions that in the, that the xenomorph even exists in the first place. Mm-hmm. It really drives that. And even though that's a perfectly valid argument, and I, you know, I wear a Wayland Utani hat. Sometimes, and it's the only. I think I've talked about this on the podcast previously. I don't really like to wear clothes with corporate logos on them. 
I wear like band shirts and that kind of thing, but I try my very best. If it has a corporate logo on it, I try to cover it up or something. But Waylon Yutani is my exception because of the irony involved in it, because that's how I feel about corporations. That's how I feel about corporate structure and Guys, I'm not a communist. You're a communist. I'm not a communist, but unfettered capitalism is ruining the world. There's no question. You know, I mean, we've got to find a middle ground. We've got to find a middle ground. I'm a communist. Well, I can't. I can't be a communist because I'm a business owner. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I'm joking. I'm not either. I, I sympathize agree. with communism and socialism because. There are big parts of it that make a lot more sense to the survival of the human race. Capitalism makes yeah. no sense to the survival of the human race. It has to be a hybrid. It of has everything. to be. It we has to be. And so, yeah, we're a socialist country. Anyway, yeah, exactly. We've so, talked yeah, about that a yeah, million I, times already. No, I think this is a good pick, man. I think uh, the the xenomorph is insane and is terrifying. And I just d- downloaded the new video game called Alien Isolation. On my, on my iPad. I want to play it so bad. I'm not a video game guy. Like, I never play video games. <sighs> I'm so pumped. I never play video games. I don't own any video game platforms. But I have watched gameplay from it, and it looks so awesome. It looks so awesome. When I play video games, or when I used to when I was younger, horror games were always my favorite kind of games, like Resident Evil and Silent Hill and that kind of thing were my favorite kinds of video games because I like being completely immersed. And this looks like one of those kinds of games. Well, the cool thing about this game is that about Alien Isolation is that, you know, for me, I had to get, you know, I got rid of my all my consoles and all that shit when I got in the van. And so I've been such a, a wanderer for so long. I can't have a playstation or anything and so i have a uh, uh, uh an ipad pro but the alien isolation is on iphone and ipad and you can play it with a playstation or xbox controller really and so i'm really pumped yeah i just downloaded it I'm maybe i could maybe i can get it on my mac i think you can if you can I'm, i might just buy the playstation controller and try it out we'll see yes we'll see you'll be stoked okay. <laughs> yeah we'll have to update each other all right well that was a good choice i'm down with that really good and we're moving on in number six now yeah okay my number six is another one out of left field one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite books clockwork orange Oh, yes. Right? Talk about I mean I know I mean obviously I know the villain you're going to name here and talk about a villain, man. Oh my god, he's like the hero and the villain, right? Right. So Alex is uh this was a book that was uh written in 1962 by Anthony Burgess and in 1971 it was adapted into a film by the late great Stanley Kuber, yeah. right? And this is one of his masterpieces. And um, <clears throat> it's just the, the, uh, the hero, the, the protagonist also just happens to also be the antagonist in a way. But you see, here's the thing. Here's the thing I like about this is that he is the protagonist of the story, but he is a villain. You know what I mean? Yes. He has no redeeming qualities. He's not a good guy no. at all in any way throughout the story. He's a rapist and a murderer, but he is the protagonist of the story. That book was so ahead of its time, and the movie is so ahead of its time because it predicted the – it's not even an antihero, but they predicted the sympathy for the devil vibe that would come along. Like now, the Joker is like everybody's favorite character. Yeah, and so the gist of the, of the, of the story is that he is a complete freaking villain and like retrobrate and just – goes around causing absolute mayhem and gets arrested. And then the state, you know, there it's really based on, you know, Pavlovian Pavlov's dog, right? Can we condition, can the state, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the government, take a vil- someone who is a criminal and condition them and using conditioning to make them so they're a good person, right? And so they're and so that's it. Right, right. But it is so good. And Kubrick does such an amazing job. But not only that, the novel, Anthony Burgess uses this crazy kind of like language. It's based on like Cockney, I think, in England. Ish. And the novel actually has an appendix in the back of the novel that defines a lot of these words. And when I remember reading it when I was like, 
18 or so and having to consult the appendix throughout the read so that I understood what the hell was Mm -hmm. being said. (laughs) So crazy. It's so it's cool though. Right. So both of them are, are iconic. The book is iconic. It's very short. Absolutely. And almost like a, a, a novella. And the movie is amazing. It's one of Kubrick's masterpieces. What's really crazy is that for the book's U.S. release, the publisher made him change the uh, the ending. And so the ending at the end of the book is one in which um, – He's like happy and everything works out fine and, you know, and he gets his money and all this shit kind of wins the lottery. But in so Kubrick used that ending in the book in which the character really faces nothing bad at the end and everything's all happy, which in in a way gets away away scot-free, which in a way is kind of like more just evil mayhem, right? Absolutely. And Burgess was pissed off. He was like, no, that's not the real ending to the book. The real ending to the book is he suffers and is remorseful at the end of the 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 american version and at the end of kubrick's he's not remorseful at all and so burgess was pissed off and anyways it's so cool it's such a cool little bit of trivia i think it's also worth mentioning the incredible performance by malcolm mcdowell as alex in the film like and how good malcolm Uh, mcdowell is in that role it's a hard movie to watch let's be honest i mean it's a difficult it's a difficult movie to watch it is It's like one of those movies where you feel yourself peeking through your fingers. And upon release of this movie, I think it was banned in the UK because they were so afraid of violence by young teenagers and emulating and copycatting it that they didn't allow it to be shown for a long time. And it was a very controversial movie. And that's a really good indicator that the villain is a strong villain. Right? Yeah. Dude, people still this to this day dress up like Alex for Halloween, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you watch this movie now, you'll be like, dude, this is this is incredible. I don't see how they could ever I hope they never remake it because it's so perfect, right? If they tried to remake it, I would like boycott, you know. <sighs> but I don't think they, I don't think they would, yeah. you know, what with Me Too and everything. I think it would be a really hard one to try to remake. Of course, that's yeah. not the point. Let me just say that I don't think glorifying rapists is the point of that book at all. Obviously not. No, not at all. No. He's a villain. <laughs> You're supposed to hate him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just that people will get the wrong idea. People see these bad characters and, you know, glorify them. Yeah. It's a little bit of a problem. And I, we've talked about this before. I, you know, my feelings about people like having Joker stickers on their car. I'm like, dude, don't like the Joker. The Joker's a, he's <laughs> evil. Come on. <laughs> but we love villains, man. And that's why we're doing this right. freaking thing. So what was your number six? Okay. Number six. And this will wrap up the top half. Okay. So I think my number six belongs on a top 10 list too. And this is from one of our favorite franchises, Star Trek. And my favorite villain from Star Trek is the Borg. Mm. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the Borg or Star Trek, not non-Star Trek fans, I don't think there's a whole lot of you listening to this podcast, but I'm sure there are some. The Borg were first introduced in the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation in an episode called Q Who. And the somewhat villain Q transports John Luke to a different part of the galaxy and they encounter the Borg and the Borg are a hive mind cybernetic race that absorb the organic bodies of every new race they encounter and assimilate their unique properties into the collective because they're searching for perfection and they forcibly assimilate them by basically murdering them and using their bodies as hosts and they are way more technologically advanced than the Federation and all of the other races that exist in the other part of the galaxy. And what really is scary about the Borg is what they represent. They're really scary looking. They're really designed in a way that makes you feel fear. But what really makes the Borg scary is how they represent forced uniformity and eugenics. And that's a real danger. And again, like you go back to talking about Nazis. We mentioned Nazis a couple of times because in the real world, in our real world, Nazis are one of the all-time number one greatest antagonists, the greatest villain because of everything they represented. But one of the main things they represented was the forced uniformity and eugenics about how everybody that is alive needs to fit into these parameters. Otherwise, you're not worthy of existence. 
And that's, you know, we don't like Jews. We don't like blacks. We don't like gay people. We don't like people with disabilities. Get rid of those so that we can strive for perfection. And that's the whole Nazi attitude, the ubermensch, the ultimate person. And that's what the Borg represent. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, my, my favorite Star Trek movie of all time, I've watched it so many times, is First Contact. Yeah. And ugh. they introduced the Borg Queen in First Contact, which I think gives it even more of like a hive mind. Exactly. Like bees and ants or hives, you know, and they, again, they're the same way in that they don't allow for weakness in the colony. They have a queen that leads them. She's brutal. She's so brutal. But what it doesn't account for is humanity and bees aren't people. And the reason they aren't people is because they don't have emotional attachments. They don't have individuality or individual freedom. And that's what the Borg represents to me is that exact disparity between humanism, which is, you know, I consider myself a humanist. If I adhere to any philosophy, it's that one, you know, and that concept flies in the face of what I believe. And that to me makes them so scary that some master could force everyone to being the same. That's why I don't like the suburbs. That's why I don't like McCarthyism. That's why I'm like so at odds with all those concepts, you know, because I feel like they're yeah, inhuman. For sure. No, it's a good one. It's a good one. Very good one. I love it. And if anybody hasn't seen uh, First Contact, watch it. It's so cool. The dual storylines to me are the best. And 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 absolutely, and Next Generation's always been my favorite. So Next, Next Generation is the best Star Trek series. Let's get real. But yeah. I mean, okay, I know a lot of people who think Deep Space Nine is too. It's a good choice. It's an excellent choice. It's a great show. Also, that one's got my favorite character, Data. Who Data is a machine, but strives to emulate humanity. That's his redeeming quality. That's what makes him an interesting. And the, and the Queen plays on that exactly, so well. exactly. And it's <laughs> guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast. You could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker, and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonso. Yeah.